Well, hello everybody and welcome to the show. My name's Aaron Ellis and today we're going to be talking to Phil Rice and our topic today is is going to be talking about inner stillness and about how getting away from the, the, the hustle and bustle of the world and starting to go inside of ourselves, how we can start to develop inner peace. So first of all, I'd just like to introduce Phil. Welcome to the show, Phil. How you doing, man? I'm so good, brother. Thank you for uh, having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. You're welcome. So just for the people that um, are new to this, just a little bit about yourself and a little bit of your travels, how you've discovered, because you were a corporate man, and now you've gone into this this other realms of what we call stillness and inner peace. So just tell us a little bit about your travels. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the early part of my working life, um, from about 16 onwards, I was working in a corporate environment. It was a very practical sort of grounded one in the sense it was uh, involving trucks, diggers. It was about forestry, mining, transport, construction, these types of things. And so I, it was a very noisy, very busy uh, very, and quite intense too uh, environment. But uh, it was highly valuable. In that, uh, you know, I, as a young man, I, I was hanging out with the guys. And so it sort of helped develop a bit of a thick skin. So uh, when you're dealing with truckies and tradies and, uh, you know, big mining operations and things that get slowed down by one piece of equipment not being there. Uh, yeah, you, you know, you learn about urgency and about uh, meeting deadlines and things. And, you know, and there's rock and roll playing in the background and then there's beers after work and then there's, you know, these types of things. So that was a, a fun introduction to sort of becoming a young man, I guess. Um, and then from there, I, I sort of, when I was about, I think I was about 25, 26, I became a little bit burned out and a little bit disenchanted with um, corporate life. I'd shifted between Auckland and Wellington a couple of times and I'd worked in the head office. So I started off in the branch and then I moved to the head office and then you know, a couple of times I finally got my management job that I'd been waiting for for about 11 years and it wasn't what I was after. So I came home and I wasn't feeling that great and uh, then I went through a process and I decided that because I was playing, I started playing guitar when, when I started my corporate life as well and so they were sort of running parallel. And uh, I was playing bass and bands mostly, and uh, then I sort of moved on to electric guitar more so, and wanted to sort of be a bit more out the front. And this was running side by side with my with my development of confidence in my corporate job as well. So they were sort of supporting each other. I was becoming more confident so in one, and that was sort recap of there. So you were being you're working in the corporate world. You've you've been really striving for eleven years to get this new position. Finally, got that position. It really wasn't what you thought it was and then you started to make this transition more into into music that you were doing at the same time yeah that's a great summary yeah so what happened is is that um i sort of re reached a boiling point and uh then i decided that um i was going to quit my job against uh it would seem counterintuitive uh probably to a lot of people but um, i decided to go and study music and become a professional musician in one form or another i didn't know how i was going to support myself but i knew that i just Have you wanted studied to music before this well, I mean, I'd been playing in bands and I had a general sort of weekend warrior kind of approach to playing, but I was playing most nights, you know, when I'd come home. So you're I wasn't super serious. So you really wanted to step it up and go into the teaching ways. Well, no, the teaching sort of happened by accident. I decided that I just wanted to follow music and see where it, let, and see where it uh, uh, brought me, you know, and uh, I had friends who were professional musos and I heard the ups and the downs of that kind of life and that didn't really put me off so much. It was more that... Um, there was such a great, maybe repulsion is a, is a strong word, but a great resistance towards carrying on in this corporate world. Um, and I wanted to find something that was more fun, intriguing, interesting, and uplifting, really. 
And I found that I had a, a, a bit of natural talent when it came to music, you know, with, with effort, things started to open up for me um, and my ability to play. And then much later, my ability to sing as well. Excellent. And then, so how long were you doing the, the teaching of the music for? And, and then what was the catalyst that, that made you just to, to put the music and the instruments down? It was about 2006 that I went to study music. And I didn't go to university. I looked at that and I thought, well, I'll go to a tech. I'll go to a tech first because it's a bit more laid back. And and I thought, well, that sounds like fun. And then if I really want to get super serious, I'll look at university after that because you know university requires a little bit more preparation to enter into. So I I went and studied, and then uh, as a sort of matter of fact, I ended up needing a bit of income. And so while working two and a half other jobs, I decided to get into teaching because it seemed like a good way to earn some income. So I did that, and then instead of doing the second year of, at the tech, I ended up carrying, building a teaching business. Uh, things started falling into place quite nicely, and I found that I didn't mind teaching to start with. Uh, after a little while, I recognized uh, that the old teaching models uh, weren't really all that sufficient, and it was quite draining mentally and emotionally. And, you know... It, you know, people think that, you know, earning 20 or $30 for a half hour guitar t- lesson, you know, you get enough of those, you can do okay. But the reality is, is that you've only got so much of yourself to give during the week. And so you sh- I found after speaking with many other music teachers that, you know, 20 to 25 hours a week is pretty much the maximum. So there is an earning cap and you can only really charge so much for certain types of lessons. So I then got involved with the teaching franchise and I ended up starting up a music school, I guess, or or building a music school in my local area that I ended up teaching in about 20 local schools. I've done band coaching. I've worked with uh, quite a few young bands. I've been involved in sort of helping them do a little bit of audio engineering, mainly working with sort of primary aged and intermediate age, but I've worked with adults and teenagers too as they sort of got better. But just to answer your question, so I've come from this running this very full-on uh, teaching business where I'm in teaching in maybe two or three venues a day, schools, and schools are nuts, especially primary schools. Well, they're all nuts, right? Because it's just so much going on you're dealing with. I mean, I was teaching at my pr- prime, I was teaching about 170 kids a week in groups and that and going between maybe, like I said, two or three venues a day. That's including my teaching studio. And yeah, it was full on. And then arranging, you know, performances at the schools and things like this too. But but what happened is, is that over time, I, I, I stopped playing my guitar. And I and I was just teaching. Every time I'd come home, I look at my guitar and just think, oh, it's work. I sort of lost my love for it. And even though I was playing in a band, like a really cool rock and blues kind of improv three piece, like a power trio band, which suited me fine because I just I could just go nuts. It was all improvisation for the most part. But I got burnt out, and I had to drop it. And then I decided to uh, go and try getting a normal job, a normal job. And that didn't work out. And then I went, I bought another franchise, just a small teaching franchise and tried to get back into it. And my heart just wasn't in it. And so then I went and tried to get another normal job and that didn't work. And I was, I was quite bummed out because I was like, man, this is, people think this is the coolest job in the world or one of them, but it wasn't for me. And I'd lost my interest in playing and uh, that's taken a few years to get over. That was quite heartbreaking. However, what it did was, is that it made space for some, another interest to emerge and I wanted to say that many years ago, I was introduced to a book um, called Fingerprints of the Gods by Graham Hancock. And uh, this friend of mine who lent me this book had had some very interesting experiences in his life as well. So he's quite open-minded to things. 
And uh, he lent me this book and I read it and then I forgot about it pretty much. And then years later, I thought, well, I'm lying here in bed. I don't know what to do with myself. I'm trying to find something more interesting to do. And then I thought, well, let's have a look at some of this fingerprints of the God stuff on YouTube rather than using YouTube for finding funny stuff to watch. I thought maybe I'll use it for, you know, nourishing this other interest. Well, you know, uh, that was sometime in early 2014, late 2013. And then uh, I started meditating after a bit of exploration, after finding, just researching things like ancient mysteries and ancient civilizations and things like that, you know, um, UFOs, conspiracy type related things. Yeah. You, you were in this corporate world and you were teaching and, and it's almost, you said you lost your passion for what you were doing. And was it like that there was, you lost your passion because there was something seemed to be missing in your life? And then as you went and you started to discover this, it seems like the fingerprints of the God was like the, the doorway, the opening to, to looking at life in a different perspective. What actually happened at that moment where you, you, you realized that this corporate life wasn't for you and that there was something more out there? Well, I have to say, uh, you know, the teaching wasn't so corporate. It was very organic and natural uh, in, in some ways uh, because it was a ground-up approach. All the teachers and the network were contributing to it. So it wasn't as corporate as, say, my previous job and maybe as corporate as, say, when you go into town. But it was certainly, you know, you had an image to portray. And so you felt the you felt a little bit of tension about, you know, when I was, you know, the kids were looking at me because I, I teach in my home. I was teaching in my hometown. So I would walk up and down the street and people just knew me because I was so prolific and I was everywhere. You know, I taught in 20 schools. So, I mean, you know, that's, you know, and they're all kids, right? So, but what happened is, is that, yeah, the book was a catalyst that a point of interest that a spark from the, from the past that got me there. But, you know, to answer your question about, you know, the, the transition, I guess, is that, you know, I, I had all these things that I wanted in my life that money got me. I had shiny things. I had, I loved gadgets. I had all these Apple gadgets. I was a real Apple geek. I had, uh, you know, I like to play video games and I like to uh, do exercise and things like that. And I wasn't really interested in having a family or buying a house or any of those types of things. I guess I was just a, a young guy, right? You know, I was a teenager until I died sort of thing. And I found that these things were no longer satisfying or fulfilling or there was you know, I mean, when I when I stopped wanting to play guitar, and then it, and you know, and then guitar just became a chore for me. Uh, it, it really it takes a little while for some things to sink in, and once that really kind of reached a critical mass, it was like, wow, I need to find something else that brings me to life. And that's when I sat there and and just got really quiet and just sort of searched my thoughts. And then I thought, oh yeah, that thing, the fingerprints of the gods book, and I started looking up stuff about that, and that led me to one thing to another, and so on. Excellent. So, this this path that is when we, and we're leading, we're going into our topic of of stillness. So, looking at this corporate world and the way that you were living, you was, you sort of lack some satisfaction in a way. And do you think that that could be that a lot of people feel this dissatisfaction because their life isn't as balanced as it could be? There's so much hustle and bustle, fastness in the corporate world. But sometimes when we don't have any silence or some quietude with ourselves, we start to get overwhelmed. So as you started to tap into this this inner peace and this meditation, what changes did you start to see within yourself? Well, I have to say that my initial introduction to a meditative practice was when I was uh, checking out Greg Braden. And I sort of discovered him through 
just, you know, like, you know, when you're searching, you know, you find people like Bruce Lipton, who I was lucky enough to meet in person, who was, I saw him in the documentaries, but Greg Braden was sort of promoting this heart math, um, heart coherence breathing thing. And I tried it out and I was like, wow, this is really powerful. And then it kind of went, this is great. I'm really enjoying this and I feel really good. And then what happened is, is that I just, I really just enjoyed sitting down and watching my thoughts. That was it. You know, I was literally like just sitting there on the chair, just going, I wasn't in a posture. I didn't know any of the stuff that I know now. I was just a dude sitting in a chair, wondering what to do with his life. But not even then. I was just sitting there watching my thoughts because the heart math thing, the heart coherence thing meant that you had to sit there and you had to do some focus, right? Well, once I'd played with that, then I was I'm just going to sit here. I was like, wow. I remember uh, as a young person, I was about 16, and I remember I experienced uh, getting stoned on cannabis for the first time. And I was sitting there and I closed my eyes and I started wandering through this sort of landscape of this tunnel almost. And it was really fascinating because I also started hearing songs and lead guitar that I hadn't heard before. And this fascinated me. And and I have to say in my later years, you know, like uh, being able to sort of experience that without having to engage any substances is uh, really where it's at because, you know, we can get a little bit hung up on these crutches and these sorts of um, entry points that have other residual sorts of effects. But, you know, I was sitting there in the chair just sort of watching my thoughts and it sort of spun me back to that time and that in my mate's bedroom listening to rock and roll or heavy metal music when I was about 16 or 17, and then going, wow, this is really interesting. I'm just sitting there watching my thoughts unfold, but with a much more mature sort of uh, view. But I was also just genuinely interested to see what was happening. And I started feeling relaxed, like those thoughts were over there and I'm over here. And so this a separation started to form. And it was, you know, I didn't really know a lot about this stuff until I had it explained to me later. But re the result was... I started to become much more relaxed and it b became noticed by people around me. It's almost like when we start to notice our thoughts, we start to realize that we aren't actually the thoughts and there is actually something observing the thoughts. And most times that we're so busy and we're so consumed with what we want to do each day, we're just consumed within our thoughts about what we need to do, what we're going to do, what we have done. And then as you said, by just sitting down and just stopping for a moment, and just allowing those thoughts to, to do what they do and observe them. It seems to be, it almost changes the way that we can look at ourselves internally, that we realize that I'm not just this brain computer which is pumping out thoughts, but there's actually something observing these thoughts and things. And that's where I find, which you mentioned, that it becomes fun to become a meditator and to start seeing these things inside and just going, wow, this is interesting. What can I learn from this? Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, and it is, it is fun. And I have to say that uh, one of the really interesting sorts of what I would call byproducts of sitting there and watching your thoughts is, is that you're creating a large mental space. And from, you know, discoveries in recent years, even not long after I started meditating, I, I began having much, my dreams became far more vivid and I had my dream recollection became quite amplified and I, uh, I'll just drop this here. I started having some interesting experiences as well because what I was essentially doing was, was rather than sort of being regulated by these thoughts that were coming up 
that I would then have a, like I would touch them or engage them and then take them on and feel them and then some sort of action perhaps. They were sort of things I was observing. And so I was able to take more notice rather than seeing something and then uh, having it, seeing a thought and then it instantly magnetizing and then creating a cycle of, you know, um, thought, feeling and action kind of thing. So you're just able to watch them and it's almost like the, the mental space expands and that sort of allows for greater detail and richness to emerge and you can appreciate it because you have this ability to sort of, you know, have a better ability to take notice of things. And it sounds very simple, but it's extremely profound. It's almost the, it's the basis of that mindfulness, just become aware of other subtle things that are going on within the body, whether that's a the breath, the the feeling of relaxation, becoming more in touch with with yourself, as we're saying, instead of being more in touch with that outside world, the more we seem to project our consciousness outside, we tend to almost lose ourselves in the exterior world. And then when we stop a little bit and we start to introspect and start to look inside, we start to see things in a different way and we start to make more sense of things. So what I'd like to ask you is for people that there's a lot of people that want to meditate these days and and often they go straight for maybe a guided meditation or they may go and listen to some binaural beats to try and relax and they'll be sitting there and people come back to me and they say, I can't meditate. I, I sit there and, and I'm my, my thoughts are going everywhere and I don't know what I'm doing. What would you say to people that are trying it that don't think they're meditating but there is something happening there? So, so here's the thing, understanding what you are doing and why you're doing it and we, you know, what, what is the outcome you're seeking? And so what I've discovered is, is that across the various traditions, there are these common underlying principles and the key to sort of, you know, relaxation, bliss states, rapture, these types of things, probably not so much rapture, but just a sense of deep peacefulness. And there's surface level peacefulness when you sit on the couch after a long day and you're sitting down. It's basically you're moving from a busy thing to a less busy thing because you're still getting your body stuff to do needles. So as far as using devices goes or training wheels or things like that, the, the traditions all have this underlying principle of stillness um, as the launch pad for spiritual development. And this, is, this can be achieved in many ways. But essentially, you know, like if you're using something to help you move into a different state, essentially binaural beats will take you down, dip you down, lift you up, dip you down, lift you up. And what it does is, is it gives you two reference points, essentially. And these two reference points end up in a contrast that you can get to know. They become distinctive. There's sort of like a like an out, you know, when you when you start meditating, you you learn how to move from the the busy beta to the more relaxed focused alpha. And then for those who want to go into deeper, deeper, then they go they start uh, dipping into theta, right? And those are just increments and measurements that we have constructed based on the instrumentation that we have available. There are many ways to experience consciousness. It's not so much about how deep you go because there's personalities and flavors of feeling states that can be sort of put into a library and you know how to reach them. So, you know, a particular type of binaural beat will take you to a certain place. 
and that will help train you to get to know it. And then once you know how to do something, say, like mental transference, where you can basically set up that feeling state that that binaural beat takes you to, you get to know the lay of the land, and then you can recreate that without the tool. Because transcending the tools is key here. Because uh, this is that whole sort of, you know, conversation about the finger pointing at the moon. Uh, you know, binaural beats are a finger pointing at the mood, uh, moon. Same with guided meditations. Don't get me wrong. I like listening to a good story. I like someone taking me on a story, just like a nice song can take you somewhere. That's what a guided meditation is for me. But uh, I don't really do guided meditations. I'm I'm sort of a practitioner of probably more yogic type and, uh, you know, magical type practices in the sense that I, I want to be able to be dropped on a desert island with nothing and go wherever I want, if you know what I mean. These tools, these guided meditations and these binaural beats as – as, as things to help us on the way to, to start to feel these states that they take us in so we can use these states as a point of reference so that later on we can try to access that, access that state without the tools. So people often will just say when they think that they're not meditating and maybe they haven't meditated very often, this is just a, one of the first levels or first states that they're starting to experience. And when they start to allow themselves to to deepen some people call it deepen or to go inside or expand the different words for it but these these different levels are are all subjective and we all have to feel them inside would you say so i like the way you said how these are tools and we can use these tools to help us get there and for example if someone has trouble physically relaxing a guided meditation may be good to teach you how to relax the body but then once you've hmm. learned how to do that, we need to go and take a responsibility of ourselves and actually start to use that process ourselves without any any guides, and then we can start to subjectively start to deepen our own experiences. Yeah, beautiful, brother. Yeah, so uh, what can happen is, is that those tools can become a little bit sticky, just like, you know, too much, you know oh man, you know, I love coffee. And you, you know when you've had too much coffee, right? <laughs> you've gone, oh man, it's almost like um, it's almost like a bad relationship. And so, it's like, what's the purposes of the tool? What's the function? What's the outcome? This is a cause, and there's an effect. Now, the effect is what we're after. And there's many paths up the mountain, and we've chosen binaural beats or guided meditation. And what I'll say is this: is that you've got to explore and find out what works for you because you're right; it's absolutely subjective. And these feeling states, or these wait for it, intrinsic energies, right? It's knowing them and being able to distinguish between different states that allows us to, like I said, you know, um, this one. It's like holding a banana in one hand and an orange in the other. They are very distinctive, okay? And that's the same with feeling states. But your ability to pay attention is going to be like, oh, I feel like I've just got two apples in my hand. They don't seem to be very different. And then you improve your ability to pay attention. It's like, oh, hang on, I've got a Granny Smith and a Brayburn. Oh, wow. It's not just an apple and a banana. And so you learn to fine tune your ability to pay attention and essentially unlock higher degrees of resolution and detail in what you're observing in your meditation object. And this is how you can start unlocking doors to I mean, look, getting relaxed and peaceful is, is the foundational platform for higher operations, for spiritual development. And, you know, but using, you know, using a word like stillness, I think it's something we've got to 
uh, it, it can, you know, like I said, you know, these words can come across as a bit woo-woo and a bit hippie and all that. There's nothing wrong with being woo-woo or hippie, but um, it turns some people off. And let's, some people are thirsty, but if, and they want that water, but if it's not in a cup that they like, they won't drink it no matter how thirsty they are. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in to say language is important. You know, finding a way to sort of uh, that language to communicate with people, I found to be a very important sort of tool in my bag of um, communications. Brilliant. So we're coming close to um, the half an hour, and just want to recap on what we've talked about. So we've, we've, the topic of today has been talking about stillness and being able to go within. And we just started with with your journey of being a corporate man and just really working in the world and really not, let's be honest, not paying a lot of attention to, to your inside of what was going on within yourself in your own brain. And then we start to find well, I've found with a lot of people that they often maybe get stressed, they may get anxiety, or they may just get to a point where where you were, you just feel like that this isn't for me. And then sometimes when we start to introspect and start to incorporate some stillness in our life, whether that's those very first stages of stillness of just sitting there and just examining that monkey mind going everywhere, you must say that there's just so many advantages and the way that we feel and the way that we can look at the world by this this just starting to introspect and starting to go into these places of, of silence. So just finishing off, Phil, would you be able to give just a couple of tips for people that, that, that want to start meditating and they want to start experiencing the stillness, but they're concerned that they have this racing mind, they that that things aren't working, they just can't do it. What what advice would you give them? Okay, so um, for those of you who are looking for uh, a, a really accessible entry point, uh, this is the first thing that I share with anyone when I talk to them. If they look like they, they're wanting something, I say, hey, I've got something. And that is, first of all, get comfy. Uh, you better to sit up straight on the edge of a chair with your chin tucked in, roof... <laughs> tongue to the roof of your mouth, just relaxing it there and keep your back nice and straight and just drop your shoulders down. Okay. Your posture will help a lot because your body creates noise. And if your body is the loudest noise, then it's going to override other things. Okay. The next thing is, is that you just want to focus breathing in and out through your nose with your eyes closed and just focus your attention on the tip of your nose. That brings your attention, your focal point to a central place and that helps you uh, basically bring everything into a point of stillness. So essentially, you don't have to worry about posture to start with. But if you want to get used to focusing and building mental space, any, you sit there, lay there, however you want to do it. You can stand if you want. I would say starting standing is not the best place. But just focusing on the tip of your nose and, and, and watching the breath move in and, out, in and out the end of your nose and feel it. And all your and you're bringing all your attention to a single point, and that is great. But the 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 other thing I would offer is is that a secondary exercise, which is actually more of the primary exercise, is just sit there and watch your thoughts. And if your attention strays and you 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 attach and touch a thought, just gently pull back and become the observer again. The more that you can become the observer in your life, the less you will find yourself reacting. And then you will have the space to respond how you would really like. And that, my friends, is one of the great treasures of meditation. And I think I, I like the way you mentioned that 
just to starting to get into that posture and focusing on that breathing again. Because once again, when you calm the body down and you said you calm that noise down and we start to feel comfortable within ourselves, then we can really start that observation process. If you're still concerned about being uncomfortable and, and, and not feeling good in your own body, we won't be able to make that next step, which you said is the main practice of just being able to observe. Yeah, perfect. I've got to say, they, um, some people that I've taught, you know, when I teach them uh, posture, it's a game changer, you know, just posture. <laughs> and they think, you know, they're sitting in a straight chair, but they're leaning back on the back of the chair. If you can support your own weight and relax with that and hold, and, and keep your back straight and tuck your chin in a little bit, it's uh, it can be quite a profound thing for people who have already been, you know, learned how to relax and focus on their breathing. So there's many layers of, of this. And essentially the, the whole journey is eliminating noise and static, eliminating noise and static from your physical body. It gives you, because you, you, you're listening for very, or trying to take notice of very small things. And the louder something is, like your body, your digestive processes, maybe not such a good idea to eat before you meditate or eat the wrong things, things that will make you give you gas and make you burp in that. But the more you, the quieter you can get, the stiller you can get, and the more detail and resolution that you have access to and insight and obviousness will start to naturally emerge, will come to the surface, and interesting things will you know, start to get your attention. And for me, I didn't realize that it was actually quite simple. <laughs> Fantastic. Awesome. So thanks for your time, Phil. And I really want to delve into this stuff a little bit more. So I'd love to have you back on and we'll just delve into a little bit more of these, these inner practices and maybe even working with some of the tools that can help people go into these deeper practices. Absolutely, Aaron. Uh, you know, sharing this information is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real joy and it also, it's very purposeful and uh, it's almost a duty as well, I think, because, you know, when you've got the good stuff and there's people around you who are looking and they don't know, you know, I mean, having a podcast they can listen to at their own leisure is really great because some people need to be in the right space just to be able, just to be open to this information. So I'm very grateful for this time and thank you so much for your wonderful questions and doing the recording. So I look forward to our next uh, catch up. Thank you. And thanks everybody else um, who's been listening today. I've been Aaron Ellis and we've had our fabulous guest, Phil Rice, and we will catch up with you again next time.